episode 18 of the Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a writer, editor, and PhD student studying 20th century American culture and the history of the American space program in the 1960s. And I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a historian of science and freelance writer with words in various places on the internet. I'm currently a regular writer on women in the history of science at smithsonianmag.com. And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. When I'm not working with the Lady Science team, I can be found writing about museums and public history around the internet and managing social media for the Science History Institute in Philadelphia. So before we dive into the episode, I wanted to say that we're currently running a special series on the website about women, health, and the law. We have so many different kinds of perspectives that examine how gender and medicine intersect with our legal system, and we're covering everything from breast density to euthanasia. Um, And we're running this series the entire month of April, so be sure you check it out at ladyscience.com slash blog. Uh, So with um, that in mind, that sort of brought us to our topic today. Uh, But when you usually think about issues related to women, health, and the law, you probably don't think about breast implants. Uh, But that's what we're going to be tackling, um, and it's a really fascinating story. Um, For decades now, researchers, plastic surgeons, the FDA, and women themselves who have received breast implants have been investigating their safety. Um, And this is a very complicated history, and it's wrapped up in debates about what counts as evidence in the courtroom and our uh, cultural assumptions about breast implants and women who choose to get them. Uh, So just last month, uh, the FDA began investigating reports that showed a possible link between a particular type of textured implant and a rare form of cancer called anaplastic large cell lymphoma. Um, This is a form of lymphoma that attacks the immune system and originates in scar tissue that surrounds the implants. And doctors usually treat it by taking the implants out. Um, The FDA has now identified 457 cases and nine deaths in the U.S. linked to this form of cancer. And this isn't actually the first time the FDA has looked into this link, the link between silicone implants and this particular type of cancer. In 2011, they released a safety communication that explained this possible link and laid out actions that they would take to investigate. And it also recommended, among other things, that surgeons report all confirmed cases of the cancer in women with breast implants. Yeah, and so just because we have evidence that implants can lead to this rare form of cancer doesn't automatically mean that the implants will be removed from the market or that women with these implants should get them removed to prevent the cancer. Um, First of all, just because a woman has the implants does not mean that she will automatically develop cancer. The questions, you know, kind of come up, do we just add this as a checklist of risks and side effects, or does this warrant more heavy-handed regulation? But to even get to answering those questions, the FDA has to come to consensus that there is a problem to begin with, and this is where things start to get messy and complicated. So according to the Washington Post, the FDA regulator said in documents that they released before their meeting um, to discuss these findings, that it is impossible for them to determine the exact frequency of the cancer because, quote, the U.S. does not track the total number of implants on the market. Estimates of the frequency of the disease range from 1 in 3,000 women to 1 in 30,000 women. This lack of data about the implants themselves was a problem in 2011, and it's a problem now. The failure to even track the number of implants on the market which here I will remind everyone that these are medical implants that require an invasive surgery. This isn't just a simple Botox injection. This, um, this failure is indicative of a real carelessness that has pervaded the history of breast implants in this country, and that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. So let's go back and take a look at the story to see how we got here, um, how not much has changed, and how researchers and the FDA in particular approach the safety of breast implants. 
Breast implants have been on the market since the 1960s. Timmy Jean Lindsay was the first woman to receive a silicone implant um, from doctors Thomas Cronin, Cronin and Frank Giro in 1962, and the implants themselves were manufactured by the Dow Corning Company. So before this, surgeons um, had been performing breast augmentation, but using um, different materials. <laughs> so uh, things like uh, wool and sponges, and in some cases, glass balls, which sounds really <laughs> heavy. Uh, <laughs> and fragile, just delicate. Like, yes. A bad idea on so many levels. <laughs> uh, the first use of silicone was in Japan um, during the Second World War, Japanese women um, injected non-medical grade silicone into their breasts to make themselves more appealing to uh, American men by conforming to sort of white Western ideals of beauty. Um, so all these methods obviously were incredibly dangerous and side effects ranged from scarring um, and skin necrosis to death. Um, uh, uh, Timmy Jean Lindsay, however, didn't suffer um, these side effects, um, and her surgery was considered a success. Uh, it wasn't until 1976 that breast implants came under the purview of the FDA when they rolled out the Medical Devices Amendment and took over regulation of medical apparatus. So, since breast implants had been on the market for over a decade, they were kind of it, they were grandfathered in under the amendment, which basically meant that the implants were assumed to be safe because they were already in use and that the manufacturers didn't have to prove that the implants uh, to prove their uh, safety and efficacy like they would if it was a new product that was coming into the market after the amendment. Yeah. And I guess here we can say that the before um, Cronin and Giro performed the surgery on Timmy Jean Lindsay, they performed the surgery on a dog to test to see if it would work. So that's the very rigorous um, <laughs> uh, testing that this underwent before, you know, they started just putting it in women. So very rigorous, <laughs> controlled studies. The bit about um, it silicone becoming popular among um japanese women after world war ii it's just like i feel like I'm, and i'm sure people have like i feel like you could write a whole thing about like the power of the of the u.s in the post-world war ii world and uh western beauty standards and uh all of that just like baked into that piece of the story um, but to move the story forward, um, so in 1977, so one year after, uh, one year after breast implants came under the purview of the FDA, uh, the very first lawsuit related to breast implants was filed. Uh, I like that it took just a year. Um, the woman, <laughs> uh, the woman who filed the suit, uh, her implants ruptured and she won, um, a $170,000 settlement. Then in 1982, um, uh, so about five years later, an Australian report found connective tissue disease in three women, women with silicone implants. And then that same year in San Francisco, um, a multi-million dollar lawsuit was filed claiming that silicone implants were causing connective tissue disease. So at this point, things kind of snowball, and many people begin filing lawsuits that claim the same connection. And... They also start claiming connections between implants and autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis. And at that point, the FDA put um, breast implants into the class three category for medical devices. Um, this is a risk-based class that basically means that there is a higher risk to a patient who receives the device. But then in the 90s is when like the really big lawsuits happened. Uh, in <laughs> 1991, Brenda Toole won a $5.4 million settlement against Dow Corning based on the claim that her breast implants uh, increased her risk of developing cancer and autoimmune disease. 
Later that same year, um, another woman, uh, Marianne Hopkins, received a $7.3 million lawsuit, um, or million dollar settlement, by linking her connective tissue disease to her ruptured silicone breast implants. In 1992, the FDA issued a moratorium on these implants because manufacturers had clearly not proved that they were safe. But in 2006, the FDA lifted the ban. And here we are today with the silicone implants under investigation again. Yes. And in that uh, time when the silicone implants were banned, um, saline uh, mostly Mm. took over. Um, and so saline and is still used today as well as the, the silicone implants. Um, and I think, I think it's the Marianne Hopkins lawsuit, the $7.3 million one that is the largest loss, like class action lawsuit settlement ever. I think, I think that still holds true. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but yeah, yeah, that one was a doozy. And Dow Corning, I think, eventually also had to file bankruptcy after. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. After this whole mess. <laughs> um, um, also, just to throw in here, because um, I think it's kind of cool. At my my other job, the Science History Institute, we have one of those Dow. Um, I mean, not exactly one of these, but we have a, a breast Dow breast implant um, from the 1970s or 1980s in our collection. Uh, which it's just it's, it's like a sample one, and it's just like in a box, and uh, there's you can see pictures. And it's just of one. It. It's just I I think I don't, there's only I don't know where they're stored. I'm not our collections manager. Um, only one of them has been digitized, and so I've only seen a picture of what I assume is one of them. Um, but it's kind of weird because it's just sitting there in a box, and uh, it just looks like a weird blob. <laughs> um, but it's interesting and. Uh, so if you want to see a picture of one of those, you can look at our collection. We'll put that one in the show notes. Yeah. Um, so the way that this all played out in the courts is uh, actually pretty complicated. Um, it's not so straightforward as these women won their lawsuits. So clearly we're done and we have moved on. <laughs> um, it's actually really complicated. And so we'll do our best in unpacking this. Um, so with the slew of lawsuits, which by 1995 had amounted to $4.25 billion, um, that was billion dollars, um, many women with silicone implants were worried about their health. And in stepped exploitative doctors and attorneys to cash in. In 1995, the New York Times reported that some doctors um, were cashing in on women's concerns about their health. And they point out one doctor who charged $6,000 for an examination and subsequent tests. So the Times also found that at least two doctors agreed to let women defer part of their payments until after they won a settlement. Others in the medical community were quite critical of these doctors for obviously good reason, um, for preying on women's fears and performing unnecessary tests on women in exchange for large sums of money. and. The attorneys who worked these cases sent bulk referrals to these doctors, and there were other reports that showed that some doctors who served as expert witnesses in these cases were paid for their testimony. So the attorneys also orchestrated media attention, and they hired PR firms to give high-profile interviews in the hope of swaying public opinion about breast implants. And by high-profile, it's like 60 minutes, which... I guess has kind of dwindled in popularity now, but like in the early 90s, 60 Minutes was the jam for getting your news. So um, so without much hard evidence, um, exploitative attorneys and doctors were able to wield a wild amount of control over the cases. And this has really muddied the waters in the sense that it's been hard to separate the carefully stoked fear and crafted narratives from the facts. This is such great, great doctoring behavior. Very <laughs> good, good observation of the Hippocratic Oath and all of that. Good, good job, doc. Yep, doctors. Yep, yep, yep. <sighs> yeah, I think there was one, the one who was charging the $6,000 in the New York Times piece um, when asking about being accused of performing unnecessary exams on the women. 
he was like, look, they're not unnecessary. I'm just trying to understand what's going on here. I'm just trying to learn about the silicone implant problem and enlighten the world and help these women for $6,000 uh, each. <laughs> well, and of course, no, no doctor has ever used the justification that he was just trying to help or do research or understand uh, the world to do anything bad. I mean, that's obviously never happened uh, ever, right? So, <laughs> yeah. And it's, God, and it's one of these things where, and I feel like we'll get into this even more, but, like, there, there are so many instances when women are refuse tests that they should get or told that they're being silly or that a problem is all in their head um, with doctors like dismissing their concerns that then the idea that a just that a doctor can exploitatively like tap into that need to have like someone who will listen to you and take you seriously but, like, in this model that is just meant to take all your money and make them look cool because they get to be an expert witness in a class action shoot, class action suit about breast implants or whatever, uh, is just, it's, I think, one of the really infuriating things about the story. If all of this questionable doctor ethics wasn't enough to add confusion to the debates about implant safety... The lack of solid studies at the time really made it even more difficult to sort of um, sort out. So when women started bringing lawsuits about breast implants, there was there were virtually no serious studies that showed um, implant safety or danger. Um, all they had was um, the individual women's medical history and experiences, and this is in part because uh, the implants were grandfathered into the amendment and they didn't have to do any studies. Uh, mm -hmm. In 1992 is when the first serious studies um, started to be published and these focused on the claim that silicone implants cause breast cancer. None of these studies found evidence that implants resulted in a higher risk for breast cancer and after this lawsuits focused less and less on this claim. And like we said earlier, um, the new findings under the review for the FDA that we were talking about, they're not for breast cancer, they're for a rare form of lymphoma. So just to be really clear about that. So the claims that implants caused autoimmune disorders and connective tissue disorders were even harder to pin down. In the 1980s, case reports on women with implants and connective tissue disease started to pop up. And these case reports continue to appear today. In the mid to late 90s, case-controlled studies looked at links to connective tissue disease, but all concluded that silicone implants didn't result in an increase in connective tissue disease. So the latest study was conducted by researchers at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in 2018. They looked at a 10-year study conducted by implant makers Allergan and Mentor, but at least half of the women dropped out of that study. So what data they did manage to gather is what MD Anderson looked at. So already what they're working with is kind of incomplete. Um, they found that women with silicone implants had um, greater rates of Sjogren's syndrome, which is an, an immune system disorder, uh, scleroderma, a connective tissue disease, and melanoma, which is skin cancer. So since the study was incomplete, the data was very limited, um, and FDA regulators said that they disagreed with MD Anderson's conclusion. So everything is very muddled, still. <laughs> uh, and despite thousands of women um, who still attribute their various health problems to their implants, the FDA and now decades of research insist that they are mostly safe when the procedure is performed correctly and the implants are maintained afterwards. So there have been a few retrospectives written more recently that have looked back at these big lawsuits of the 1980s, and one thing that comes up is that not a lot of scientific evidence was presented in these suits. Um, the scientists who did offer expert testimony were usually bought and paid for. Um, so the suits were really settled on anecdotal evidence from women and uh, just kind of general public opinion, uh, which is kind of 
problematic. It's it's not the most scientifically rigorous way to figure out if something is a problem. Um, but like we were just saying, there also just weren't a lot of scientific studies done about breast implants at the time. Uh, those came later, after all of the lawsuits. So in a case like that, uh, sort of what should count as evidence? I mean, that's a really hard question. Anyone want to take that one? <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting and goes along with a lot of the stuff that we talk about on the podcast and write about in the magazine that um, a lot of the evidence is anecdotal evidence and it's testimony from women. And that's mm-hmm. like automatically going to be suspect. Um, and I think... Obviously, this isn't true for everyone in all places, but there is a tendency to, I think, stereotype women who get breast implants uh, in ways that would make their testimony appear even less reliable than it would normally, Um, that they're, like, frivolous or shallow or, you know, self-absorbed. Cosmetic. Yeah, Yeah. that they – and that the – having implants is like an elective cosmetic surgery and that maybe they're just gold digging for money, like things like that. I think that there are cultural things that impact how we think about what counts as evidence in cases like this. The other thing that comes to mind for me that we talk about also, I think regularly on the podcast and in the magazine is um, just the fact that science and medicine hasn't spent a lot of time in the grand scheme of things thinking about women's bodies and so there's a lot of things that just we don't have medical good like medical evidence for or about because for a long time it was just like women's bodies are weird i don't know uh let's not think about them And I feel like this kind of the fact that there wasn't a lot of um, knowledge about breast implants uh, when all these lawsuits happened comes in part from just the general idea that's like, it's not the kind of thing that that doctors think of studying. And so when stuff goes wrong with it, uh, everyone's like, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the studies that came more after the fact, after women started coming forward with issues, they were creating studies based on that. Right. So they, you know, so they, I mean, they were looking at breast cancer, not this other form of cancer, which takes a long, it takes a long time from what I can tell to actually develop. It's a slow developing cancer. Um, So if they were looking at, you know, cancer, which it seems like they were focused specifically on breast cancer, not any other kinds of cancer. Um, Who are they enrolling in their studies? Is it someone who just had them? Or is it someone who has had them for 10 years and has maybe now developed the cancer? Um, So it also depends on like what questions they're asking. And the questions that they're asking are based on all of these things after the fact. Yeah. Um, Type And that's not going to give you a holistic, I don't like saying holistic in the sense that it evokes like holistic (laughs) medicine, because that's certainly not what I'm advocating for. But it doesn't really give, there's no holistic study of a woman's body and how they interact with these implants. And this could have been done if the FDA didn't have these like policies in place that basically protect companies from having to spend money doing studies to vet things that they've been marketing when they probably shouldn't have been <laughs> in the first place, you know. So the and the FD, however long the FDA takes to catch up with whatever new thing is on the market, like if they still have these policies in place that grandfather in these products and they don't have to pay to have these studies mm-hmm. done, then you get the situation that Layla's describing where the studies don't start from a holistic place of considering everything all at once they start from well what are the lawsuits about or they start from assumptions like well if you're going to get cancer from it it's going to be breast cancer right Right. exactly exactly yeah Yeah. because because your breasts are just completely like you know separated (laughs) from the rest of your body yeah and like and the thing is like because the one that they're looking at now is a form of lymphoma right i do think that there are lymph nodes are there (laughs) It's just, it doesn't, 
yeah, it certainly, um, the way that the studies have been done since then have not been conducted well. Um, and the company that MD Anderson, they took their data and looked at it, the one where like they were looking at the 10 year period, but half the women dropped out. Um, apparently the FDA has, uh, fined them monies, uh, yeah. for not like following through with their rigorous study. Right. So, I mean, that's, I don't know. It's something right? <laughs> I hate. Like when we get breadcrumbs, we're like, yay. Yeah. It it kind of makes me think, and I don't I don't know how like a hundred percent true this is, but I feel like I've heard kind of that in the grand scheme of things, in the U.S. Um, or like in especially in Europe, like a company has to prove that something is safe, whereas in the U.S., a company just people have to prove that it causes harm. And so, like, like where, mm-hmm. like, the benefit of the doubt falls in terms of, like, a new product out in the world. And this kind of feels like that sort of thing, too, a little bit, where, like, it's a consumer product, it's fine until it has been proven otherwise, not, hey, this is a thing that goes into people's bodies, it's a medical device that needs to be proven to be safe before. And, like, that, I mean, the, that is supposed to be part of what the FDA right. does. Yeah. Like it's a, you're supposed that was part of what happened after the thalidomide uh stuff was yeah. that that was one of the things that they added that they had to that you had to show safety right. and efficacy. But I think that's that is a good distinction though that you made Rebecca because there's been other countries that have banned these textured silicone implants because of that specific the link to that specific form of cancer. Um so I think the way that we regulate things compared to other other countries with different healthcare systems and different yeah. regul different cultural ideas and beliefs about regulation. Yeah. Approach this differently. Yeah. I think there's also probably something to be said about uh the difficulty in portraying breast implants as medical devices yeah. in American mm-hmm. culture in particular. Um, and that, that, that contributes to them not being taken very seriously because like we all agree that a pacemaker or, um, a stint or something like that is a medical device. Um, but because it's quote unquote cosmetic surgery and, uh, because it's supposedly frivolous, we, I think we tend not to think of breast implants as medical devices, even though they are and they should fall under the same regulation. And another thing about that is we tend, I think, to forget that um, not all the people who get breast implants are women and not all people who get breast implants get them for aesthetic reasons. Um, Some people get them to treat their gender dysphoria. Some people get them after they've had mastectomies, like... There are a lot of reasons that people get breast implants, and they are not all the, like, pop cultural idea we have of why a woman would want to have larger breasts, you know? That gets into this last thing that I wanted to bring up, um, that with all the issues with the courts and the lawsuits aside, um, I think the problem with breast implants goes much deeper. That kind of gets to these cultural cultural issues um, last month, Amanda Mole wrote a great piece in The Atlantic about how America is too glib about breast implants mm-hmm. and that they are seen more they are seen as more of a joke than a serious medical procedure. With this latest round of FDA investigations, she writes, quote, no matter how the FDA moves forward, at least part of the problem faced by patients is the glib culture that can downplay the procedure's seriousness. So she points out that breast augmentation is fundamentally different than a lot of other types of cosmetic surgery, which involve taking something out, so like liposuction. Um, Breast augmentation comes with the same issues involving an operation and with the limitations of the device, which we're meaning the implants here. Many women will have to have additional medical work done on their breasts to maintain them in the long term. But she argues that the casualness with which we as a culture treat quote-unquote boob jobs downplays the importance of maintaining them properly. 
And she also points out that variations in state laws has opened the door to surgeons who are um, not board certified to perform these operations. Um, and these surgeons often do so in assembly-like fashion and in low-cost settings. So whether you agree with the FDA and the many researchers that believe implants to be safe, you can't really deny that implants and the people who get them, both historically and presently, are not taken seriously enough. Um, and if anything, our cultural attitude about breast implants really need to be interrogated and changed. I think that we see people who need breast implants for, say, you know, reconstruction after a mastectomy versus someone who's getting one for, you know, a cis woman who wants them for cosmetic reasons, and then a trans person who wants them to treat their gender dysphoria, that we see those reasons as being frivolous or not serious enough. Um, and one, I mean, that's, of course shitty but also like it doesn't matter this yeah. person whoever they are is going through an operation and they should be treated the same way that anybody else who is going in for a procedure or operation no matter what you think of their reason for having it is yeah i think there's also and i want to be careful here because i don't i don't mean to cause any harm by saying this um i think there's a tendency to romanticize breast implants for certain people. So if yeah. you're getting breast implants as part of your reconstruction after a mastectomy, there's, there is a kind of like what I find personally as a person who has breasts to be a really kind of like gross, <laughs> fetishizing, <laughs> mushy culture around breast cancer that, um, that romanticizes people who had breast cancer and like uh, turns them into these like uh, inspiring stories of overcoming and that we're supposed we we're we receive all of these signals about how we should um, we should support people who who need this reconstruction and that um, that them having getting their breasts back is like a really important part of their healing process and all of that stuff. And I think that that is all true, but the way that that is portrayed in a sort of cultural sense um, has effects on the way that we treat women who get breast implants for other reasons or the way that we treat people who get them for, you know, people who aren't women who get them for other reasons, whatever the case may be. I think that there's there is definitely like a breast cancer industrial complex in this country. Oh my God, and, yeah, sure, you know, yeah. The Susan G. Komen thing is ridiculous. Don't get me started on the various like breast cancer awareness things that are really gross. But I think that can be part of the conversation too, is that like we are, we seem to be very good in American culture about um, separating out uh, when and uh, where it is uh, morally acceptable to be someone with breasts. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And I think that bringing in kind of the fetishizing, um, of women who get reconstruction augmentation um, that that is a completely different conversation and the rhetoric around that is completely different that is all about empowerment and they kind of co-opt feminist language in a way um, to say well this is about loving your body, getting comfortable in your body again, being, you know, that type of thing. Whereas a person who is not getting, getting, getting breast augmentation for a completely different reason, that it's to make themselves more attractive to men or that it's, you know, they kind of lose the agency of behind why they're they're opting to have this operation. Yeah. And that conversation intersects with like conversations about disability and about ableism and about how we fetishize people with impairments, people who are sick, 
people who have disabilities, like it has far, it has really far reaching sort of tendrils into other aspects of speak. I think of American culture is what we're mostly speaking about here, but yeah, um, yeah. that like um, being sick is inspirational somehow <laughs> and that yeah, you yeah. get to transcend norms about bodies because uh, you've been sick and that um, we can reframe conversations about people's bodies to make them inspiring by, like you said, co-opting this rhetoric about um, feeling comfortable in your own body and being empowered. But if you don't have what we can, we consider this like moral purity of being sick as a motivation for like wanting to change your body, then, Mm -hmm. you know, then you're, then you're frivolous, then you're shallow, you know, you're immoral, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it feels like it's it's one of these things where like I sort of get the impression that a lot of uh advocates for people with breast cancer, um, even like the non icky ones, uh sort of put a lot of work as they should into um making breast reconstruction surgery like part of the conversation and like I feel like there like there have sure. been uh stories in TV shows where like they talk about like women having breast cancer and then making those choices and the pros and cons and all of that complexity and like it's good that like a lot of that more people have been able to center that but it happened, I think, in this way where folks centering that sometimes felt the need to say we're different than other people getting um, getting breast implants. And so they couldn't, so some folks like couldn't just have a conversation about how uh, women have a right to do with their bodies what they want and, and like that maybe breast implants should be morally neutral for everyone, uh, but instead had to be like, no, it's like, special for this group of people over here um, because they're different from these people over there. And that's because everybody is sort of laboring under the same kind of like patriarchal umbrella of ideology about breasts and what they mean. And that the reason that breast cancer advocates who are talking about the need for um, reconstruction to be part of that conversation and to be an option for women who have had mastectomies which I think is really good, but the reason that they feel that they need to set themselves against this is because we have this idea that, like, or you know, you don't get breast implants unless you're a bimbo, you know, right. quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And, like, that is the overarching cultural conversation about this, and it has to do with, you know, the fact that uh, American culture can't conceive of, you know, breasts as anything other than, like, a sexualized... Uh, what men want yeah what men want and what men like and um how attracted they are to men and that colors all the conversations about this yeah and it's like the the breast cancer uh advocates for reconstruction are trying to separate themselves or at least break away from like i mean there's there's an awareness that that's that that's there, that that patriarchal, you know, <laughs> beliefs about breasts yeah. is there. They understand that. They know that it's there. It's, they're aware of it, which is why they have to change rhetoric. They have yeah. to change the conversation for them, even though they're leaving all of these other people behind that need it for different reasons. And again, the fact that they co-opt feminist language to do that, I have a lot of problems with that. I mean, I've had a lot of problems with the Susan G. Komen brand of breast cancer advocate for a really long time. I mean, having multiple people in my family with breast cancer, like, I can't stand it. I can't stand the language of survivor and losing a battle. And I can't stand, I I think that that type of rhetoric is absolutely terrible. We should never talk about an illness that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Or in the people who have that illness. I mean, then there's I. You could cut this out if you want, since I'm just talking nonstop about baseball. But the Cubs breast cancer awareness <laughs> thing. 
I did not think that you were going to go to baseball after that. <laughs> it's not about baseball. It's about bad media, you know, literacy. But their their breast cancer awareness night, like their campaign is Save Second cool. Base. So it's like... Serious? Oh my God, I hate everything. It's really bad. But it's kind of the same thing with their every... Like, part of the reason that this story about breast implants that we've been talking about today anyway is so complicated and part of the reason that the science is so muddled and that the legal cases are so involved is this larger like ideology that we've been talking about this patriarchal conception of the body um that sexualizes breasts and and sort of sets out like limits for um when it's acceptable to have them (laughs) and for whom and in what certain contexts and it has to do with you know what men are interested in and like i think it's a real i i think this is a really interesting conversation to have about this sort of object in particular because it touches on so many of the things that we talk about in lady science all the time about the way that um that's the intersection of science and culture is a very messy place and that like the things that we think of as objective like it may seem maybe it seems like obvious or given that like uh you should investigate whether breast implants cause breast cancer but it's not it's not that comes from somewhere you know that comes from like a larger understanding that we have about how women's bodies work or a misunderstanding in more, you know, more often than not. <laughs> yeah. And I exactly. think it's a really, yeah. it's a really sort of tidy entry point into these conversations and something that people have strong opinions about or, and, and something that people probably have like experience with, at least in a popular culture sense. Yeah. I'm saying good yep. choice of discussion. Topic. <laughs> <laughs> nice work. Yeah. yeah. And like, I want to say that like, when I was diving into this research, I mean, it's like just like wading through just like a bunch of stuff to try to figure out where the story is right. because it goes in so many different directions. Like I didn't even get to the nugget about the doctors, the exploitative doctors until after I had already read all this other stuff about the research and the lack of the studies and all of that stuff. And I was like, oh my God, this just keeps getting more and more bizarre. And, you know, I mean, of course, a story that starts with putting breast implants on a dog is going to end up in this like completely, you know, labyrinthine uh, (laughs) monster of, you know, a history. But um, after going through all of this stuff and reading all of the stuff that I did, like, I mean, I still don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I can't yeah. come down firmly and say I'm going to side with the FDA and the researchers or I'm going to side with, you know, the the health concerns. Like I don't I don't know because yeah. of all of the and I didn't I knew even I went into this thinking the FDA and they're all just a bunch of assholes, which they are. Right. I will say <laughs> they certainly are. But I kept, once I actually got into it, I kept going back and forth because it, the story kept going back and forth, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as a 20th century American historian, anytime I see Dow anywhere, I'm like, well, yeah. what did they do this time? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. But yeah. it reminds me of, um, it reminds me, Layla, of our, like, our attempt to investigate what constitutes a medical device at various points mm-hmm. in history. Oh, God. We were doing some research about um, various forms of contraception. And so we were trying to determine, like, what does the FDA consider a medical device in this time period and in this time period? And turns out yeah. that is impossible because we asked the FDA historian and she didn't know either. <laughs> so, figures. Yeah. Because, I, I, I mean, the thing that we were running up against was the issue of medical device versus a cosmetic device. Right, exactly. Right. And that's kind that's almost the same issue culturally at least yeah. that we've got going on with the breast implants. Yeah. yeah. And it like goes to show that even yeah, even if the FDA decides yes, this is a medical device as they should, like it th- that doesn't exist 
separate from culture and separate from then how do, does does the surgeon think of it as a medical device like as an individual human being or does he think of it as a cosmetic device and if he doesn't think of it as a medical device then the fda can lay out all the regulations they want and the doctor is still going to have this like social cultural idea that this is not medical in the same way that that a pacemaker surgery would be yeah i like also this notion that the fda had to tell doctors that they should keep records of whether or not their implant patients get cancer i think that's pretty telling (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah. i mean and the women who were talking to the fda giving their testimony back in march a lot of them were saying like we were not warned that this could be a side effect right yeah. we were not warned like because they give the you know the normal side effects like rupture scarring around um the implant area stuff like that but not being warned about you know the the cancer not being warned about the autoimmune and um connective tissue diseases um again because there's no consensus about whether that's even a thing to tell people about it's just a failure on multiple levels like from the very large fda failure all the way down to like the individual interaction with your doctor failure yeah Yeah. it's you know oh go ahead rebecca I, i was just gonna say it's it's just it's one of those things where it's like in some ways, it would be more satisfying if you could just be like, well, there was a cover-up. Or, well, there was... <laughs> or, well, just like, the FDA is incompetent. Or, well, Dow is terrible. And while those things are a little bit true, it's like, the real problem is this, like, really this problem of, well, nobody bothered. That is just, in some ways, more infuriating. Because it's just like, everyone was like, but they're boobs. Whatever. Well, and that's a... One of the things Amanda Mole talks about in her piece is that, you know, we they sell breast augmentations as boob jobs, which I think like just the term boob job really is what trivializes breast augmentation and reconstruction. Um, and so like I've tried to 100 percent stop using mm-hmm. that. Um, but one of the things that she talks about is how they sell these things like a product like there's advertisements for it like you're buying you know just some product at the grocery store that it is advertised in the same way and it's often punched up with sexist jokes um and that that is an enormous problem um about not only that the that the people who get these surgeries internalize the casualness of you know, that those advertisements and jokes are giving to them, so they are less likely to maintain their implants. But um, I was going to say also that I don't know about you, but I remember watching just, like, a lot of reality TV about cosmetic surgery in general. Oh, yes. But about breast implants, too. Like, I just have a very... Like, there's a chunk of my memory that is full of images from reality TV about this. And that there was, like, a period when I was growing up where I'm, you know, I'm just spitballing here. But I'm assuming it coincided with, like, after these big lawsuits in the 90s, like, and they were making, like, reality TV about people who got breast implants. And, like, I it takes up, like, a lot of space in my (laughs) young imagination of watching reality tv about the like the journey to get to be able to afford them and then to go in for the consultation like i have very i feel like we are sort of culturally saturated yeah. with these ideas of like what the experience is like and like i'm visualizing all of it like how they put the marker yes! on the face or around the boobs and on the chest yeah yeah and yeah. She, I, like a woman i'm, I'm visualizing everything sitting yeah. in the paper gown that's like open in the front talking to the surgeon yeah. and then there's an episode you know that episode of uh sex in the city when uh samantha goes in to get her consultation and that's when she finds out she has breast cancer like there's like a lot of popular media about that and i think you're right that like that combined with the way that it's advertised as like um it's advertised as a cosmetic procedure in the same way that like yes other things like that are this is not 
strictly related, but I did want to tell you that a billboard for vaginal tightening has appeared no. like two blocks from my house <laughs> downtown, and it says vaginal tightening now, and it has a phone number and has a lady on it. So this is like the. 2019 version of those old like Lysol commercials where women were like douching with Lysol to make their vaginas be more attractive to their husbands and yeah. those advertisements where it's like don't let the smell put him off <laughs> yeah I mean the, that they like uh, there's been a lot of coverage lately about labioplasty being like a yes. trendy procedure to have done and they're like this I think the conversation about cosmetic surgery and about particularly procedures that women have done uh, is not I is not going anywhere apparently yeah <laughs> yeah yeah no it's really not I think you're right um, well I guess that's a good place to wrap up <laughs> we're still stuck um, yeah we're still stuck uh, which is why we have this podcast. Word. So if you liked our episode today, <laughs> well done. Leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. If you have questions about any of the segments today, tweet us at, at LadyXScience or hashtag LadySciPod. For show notes, episode transcripts to sign up for a monthly newsletter, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea for an article and more, visit LadyScience.com. We are an independent magazine, so that means we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit ladyscience.com donate. Until next time, you can find us on Facebook at at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter and Instagram at at LadyXScience. Science.